Project. My name is David McConaughey, and I'm joined today by, by Brienne Fallon. Brienne, it's wonderful to hear you and to speak with you. I know that both of us are in isolation right now due to COVID-19 spanning the whole globe. Has it has it taken over Australia yet? Yes, we do have, um, I believe, over the whole nation, we're up to about a 1,000 cases. We actually haven't been officially locked down at this stage, but um, any sort of non-essential businesses have been closed. Um, so I'm working from home. I am still allowed to go outside, though, to like walk the dog or go to the supermarket, which is keeping me sane. Um, but what about you, Dave? How is it for you over there? This is uh, a week two. Uh, mm-hmm. of our Massachusetts. Um, we are not under a restriction to stay at home like you. Uh, we are allowed to go out for essentials and walk the dog. And uh, today I went sledding because it snowed two inches because it's still March and I live in in New England. So things are going about, but um, it is an unusual time to be a teacher mm-hmm. in higher ed. It's an unusual time to be a student. It's an unusual time for those of us that commute to work and listen to podcasts on our way because this is disrupting our entire rhythm for when we consume our media. And we're very thankful if you're listening to this today amid sequestration or isolation, or if you're sick and listening to us, we wish everyone the greatest health and we hope that everybody is safe. And we're so delighted that you're with us today. Uh, Brienne, um, what do we have for the listeners today? We actually have you, Dave. We have you and you interviewed Dr. Benjamin Rolski on the public square and the heart of culture wars. Take it away. Welcome. My name is David McConaughey, and today I'm joined by Dr. Benjamin Rolski, adjunct instructor in the history and anthropology department at Monmouth University, and a part-time lecturer in the Religion Department at Rutgers University, and the author of a fabulous new book, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond, published by Columbia University Press, fresh off the publishing presses. Uh, Dr. Ralski Benji, it's so wonderful to have you speaking with me here today for the Religious Studies Project. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I can't wait to converse with you. I I consumed your book rapidly with with reckless mm. abandon because um, one <laughs> of the things that really interested it about to me is that you start out right away mm. with uh, your experiences watching television, maybe of an era that was slightly mm. before your own. And I have to say that that was not my experience growing up. I did not watch. Right. Um, <laughs> all the family. I did not watch. Mm-hmm. I love Lucy. I did not watch the Mary Tyler Moore show. I was a, um, I don't want to call mm-hmm. myself a latchkey kid, but I was the eldest and I came home, uh, by myself on the bus. And when I mm-hmm. chose television, mm-hmm. the television that I chose was DuckTales <laughs> and, and, um, uh, Darkwing Duck and, and classic mm-hmm. kind of cartoon. And then in, in the evenings, uh, later on, it was, it was Star Trek for me. So, so there's, there's this, cultural disconnect that I felt where like as, as a, as a person growing up in the same era with you, with access to the same materials as you, my experience was so, was so different. And, and what struck me about that is that it was, 
it, we can have that kind of disconnect mm -hmm. now in our cultural experiences. So can you talk about what it was like to, to kind of be introduced to the work of Norman Lear and how, how you came to see that work as, as valuable for your scholarship, but also um, personally? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So a lot of this is, um, you know, obviously very biographical. Uh, so to be honest, uh, the shows that I grew up on did and didn't really include on the family, uh, but it certainly included mm. this moment of relevance, you know, and that's something that I get into a little bit in the book and that Lear is attempting to make television in his mind, in his opinion, uh, about more than just sort of a flashing box with lights and random sorts of things going on. Uh, so my upbringing and kind of exposure to 1970s television, obviously, I wasn't like alive, you know, when it was on or anything. It was just something that, you know, my folks had on. And I think uh, in a lot of ways, my folks represent the kind of mindset uh, that I've been thinking about for a long time, which is that, you know, something like popular culture and culture in general can be put to work. Uh, it can be used in a didactic kind of purpose. It's not just because for Lear, things like um, the Beverly Hillbillies, uh, the Riflemen, uh, you know, TV was kind of a wasteland, and it was literally re referred to that, um, I think either in the 50s or 60s, by some network executive. And so Lear looked across that space, and he thought to himself, you know, I can, I can make television do a little bit more. And I argue that this is part of a moment that also produces things like MASH and Mary Tyler Moore, which are both pieces of art, work and art that are not just about, uh, you know, Korea, or not just about um, someone who's trying to find a job in Minneapolis, uh, trying to make her way. So it was part of a larger uh, sort of moment of relevance, but then also having an understanding that sort of a progressive understanding, not unlike, you know, Parks and Recreation or not unlike um, a show like that, where it's not just about a show and what's going on between the characters. It provides a vision. It provides a model uh, for how people are to behave and interact with one another. You know, one thing I kind of miss from the 70s that is that, and this is maybe overly romantic and kind of naive, but that there was kind of a moral sort of center, a singular kind of friend you know, who people could, could actually count on to do something for them, uh, like Hawkeye and MASH, Mary and Mary Tyler Moore, um, Alex and Taxi. There was just, and I was, I've always been fascinated with that, or Harry T. Stone on Night Court. The, the television of the time presented a different kind of vision of society. And Lear was one of the most important sort of contributors to that pattern that we continue to sort of see today in, in the bad kind of fan, you know, rooting for a bunker type or a soprano type or um, a serial killer who kills murderers. You know, he started a lot of that kind of television, and, and I was lucky enough to be exposed to a lot of it when I was growing up. What would you say is the difference between the way, the, the programs that have been identified in the wasteland? Because when I think of, mm -hmm. I, I don't know, Leave it to Beaver, or Bonanza, or Wagon, uh, Wagon Train, right, that, that these, you know, kind of classic shows, mm -hmm. they had an agenda, right? Like you can't watch Bonanza today, for instance, without thinking about uh, pioneering narratives and manifest destiny mm. and the kind of racial configuration of indigenous peoples versus uh, settlers. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether whether that narrative of wasteland stuff has been oversold. But but when you say Lear has been doing something new, how would you frame that newness in contrast to what the earlier shows may have been attempting to do is it the deliberateness with which he presented social issues yeah i would say so yeah i mean a lot of this is in his kind of own mind you know because like you're saying we can contest him very early on uh because those sorts of shows are presenting a certain you know notion of family as well uh which is something that he challenges you know with his all mm. in the family and takes more or less uh the most challenging issues of the day 
and makes them the literal plot points and storylines of his television show. So if that's if anything changes with Lear, it's the fact that he begins to use the genre of the situation comedy, uh, borrowing from an English example. Because you know, by the way, on the family and Sanford and Son, two of the most well-known fan, you know shows were British adaptations or adaptations of British television shows. So that's why there's such a kind of class dimension to Lear's programming as well. Um, that's why R2 Bunker is right. a particularly white working class person. Um, and to me, I think we're still wrestling with that, the implications of that, making that type of character front and center, oftentimes the comedy coming at his expense. Um, so yeah, I agree as far as, you know, the shows that you're mentioning, presenting a certain vision of the world for Lear very much is this, uh, and this is, we can begin to sort of criticize because those shows did have a vision, you know, for right. him, he just didn't acknowledge it as sort of worthy, or he thought that he could present a better alternative, you know, something that was quote unquote relevant and applicable to what was happening at the time. So, you know, he, he got a lot of um, pleasure from knowing that he would do an episode on say, you know, hypertension in the black community. And then the next day or two days, three days after hear about how a bunch of people went to go get, go get checked out. Um, You know, so that was his, if anything, it's taking the sitcom and, composing it in light of what's literally happening at the time Mm. and reading newspaper clippings and newspapers and journals and thinking about what's happening and trying to integrate that Mm. into the television. Um, So to me, that's kind of what he's after. And, and that's, and that's the, the, the relevance Mm. uh, model Mm. that you were talking about that we, that we look at what's happening in the world and find a way to make our programming directly Mm. speak to Mm. our age and its issues. When, when we think, back as historians on on these periods and we think about the issues that Lear raised as important and mm-hmm. we try to present those issues let's say in a kind of religion in America or in a history of the you know 1950s or a history since World War II uh, uh, what are the what are the beats of the story that that we use to to tell that narrative yeah so for me I'm still sort of figuring that out I guess I'm actually I, mean, I use Lear to kind of tell one particular story, but I'm actually working on a piece that tries to narrate the 1970s as a whole, you know, as a decade. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out how to do that. Uh, for me, with this particular work, um, I've always been fascinated or taken by the sort of phrase or declaration, the personal is the political. Um, I've always, it's just something that I continue to go back to beginning in the 1960s onwards. And so if I were to begin to periodize anything, um, I'm also fascinated by the rise of what's called the social issue uh, when it comes to just American public life. And, you know, we can get into that. And, you know, who is, who is the quote-unquote side who first started to kind of push the quote-unquote social issue? Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, uh, if we were to start any kind of story, uh, the culture wars, you know, they're debated. Um, we have some slippage in what we mean. I think it's important that we be very clear and precise as to what we mean by, say, culture wars or cultural warfare or the culture wars. And that's what I try and do in my, in my teaching and and so to me, this Lear is very much living in an age of kind of culture war and cultural warfare, um, when the personal does become the political, and when, when politics themselves become less about, say, gross domestic product and more about who you're sleeping with or who you're deciding to sleep with or what you're doing in the privacy of your own home. So if I, in this piece I'm writing about the 70s, you know, Kent State is a really big deal to me, uh, that transition from the 60s to the 70s, Watergate, Vietnam, Jimmy Carter... Um, so certainly post-45 history is important here and how we re- narrate that in general. Uh, but for me, if my own kind of sort of understanding of the story is is when these two kind of forces t- come together in the sense that what we do in a certain private sense is very important politically. I'm going to make that the stuff of politics such that Lear then takes those up into his programming and makes much of his television 
about those sorts of topics. And I'm also, yeah, so anyway, uh, go ahead. I, I wonder whether, in one sense, that the technology goes really hand in hand mm-hmm. with that, that mm-hmm. switch, right? So, so if you had the programming of the, the late 40s and the 50s and you compare it with the speed at which news could travel and with production values that could be um, uh, episodes mm-hmm. produced and then, and then distributed in the, in the 70s, we have this rapid switch. So, I think, so, so I'm hearing two things, right? The f- first is that there was a move to consider the content in a new way to make it more relevant. But also I'm, I'm hearing mm-hmm. a little bit maybe in the periodization of the 60s and 70s that there, is, there are other structural social issues, not only... Uh, Vietnam mm. and Watergate, like politically and and militarily, but also that the you know mm-hmm. nightly news and the the increasing yeah. number of um, sources for mm-hmm. where one could get one news, the the simple ability that there were more than you know four channels <laughs> in the seventies. Do, do do you when you start mm. thinking about how? Lear has thought about the past and when he has a nostalgia or a anti-nostalgia for the the 50s and in the 60s as he's trying to kind of like show that contrast um are those the kind of things that 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 make it possible for that change to be even more rapid than it was previously yeah absolutely yeah technological development i'm actually thinking um about my about the next project that that looks at sort of how information began to be shared through um, just something as simple as, as um, the mail. Um, but when it comes to, yeah, exactly right. So gosh, mm-hmm. you talk about, um, or we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, how to measure a lot of this with the impact, you know, still in the early seventies, we only have about, you know, three or four different television programs or I mean channels such that, you know, hundreds of millions of people are watching a given episode at one time. Those sorts of numbers are really unimaginable today. Uh, and that speaks to the question, you know, your great question earlier about the public, you know, what does the public mean? So there's a wonderful book, Age of Fracture. You know, I think your question certainly speaks to the beginning of that, to the beginning of a fracturing of a public that Lear is perhaps trying to hold on to in an overly romantic and overly idealized way, because in many ways, progressive right. visions of, of the good are synonymous with visions of the public good and visions of the visions of the public. So, yeah, I think your technology in this time, television, uh, the fact that, you know, Lear took also great pleasure, like we were saying earlier, you know, influencing water cooler talk in the office the next day. He took mm-hmm. great pride in something like that. But at the same time, yeah, so you have hundreds of millions of people. Then over the 70s, it, that begins to fracture a little bit. By the time we get to the 80s, the Fairness Doctrine is struck down. We get things like cable, and then we begin to see the kind of you know, landscape that we have uh, today. So so if we're, if we're thinking about it, like I, I could push a technological periodization on things we Mm -hmm. can push a political oftentimes there's the kind of before watergate after Mm -hmm. watergate there's before civil rights or before the you know Mm -hmm. uh 1968 there's before martin luther king's assassination there's before jfk's assassination there's after the civil war for for you what is the what is the the easiest, the most accessible fault line of that for you? Is it technological? Is it figural? Is it political? Is it military? What, what is the line there that you would, that you would bring? Wow. Well, I guess I try and get at um, a little bit of all of it, I suppose. Um, But then I guess maybe, Hmm. you know, something also come back to a lot of someone like Jimmy Carter, 
when we narrate this period, you know, our field tends to rely on Carter and the kind of mm. introduction, the born again experience and all that to, to do a lot of work for us. I think looking at someone like Archie Bunker, to be honest, looking at someone like him as he's representative of a certain life that's beginning to be explored and kind of exposed to the public. Uh, to me, I think we should really start to sort of narrate the seventies based on, uh, I have this time issue, I think it's Newsweek or time. And it basically discovers the quote unquote middle American. Um, and that's a term that I'm trying to play around with a little bit in the seventies piece that I'm doing. But if I were to be you know, kind of honest, I do think we have to recalibrate a little bit uh, as far mm. as, so maybe I would say politically, I suppose, and maybe socially and, kind of culturally, I would use those sorts of B points and, and begin to say, you know, we have to wrestle a little bit more with how someone like Archie was shaped or impacted at the time um, by the very restructuring that you're mentioning earlier. You know, people talk about this period as the death of the working class. I think Jefferson Cowie's written a book about that historian. And Archie's included in that, in that story. And we don't necessarily bring that up as often as I think we should. Um, oftentimes, as Carter is the born again, you know, to me, we should also remember that he introduces the outsider narrative in a lot of ways to American politics that began, that then gets taken up by, you know, his obvious successor and then to a greater extent, our current, you know, president at the moment. Um, so I guess I would rely on those if I were to narrate anything. If, um, if we were to compare the way in which we're talking about television, right, the, the um, limited scope of offerings that were available uh, to the public, and, and then mm-hmm. we kind of roll the narrative forward to today. Um, is the fracturing that that Lear was potentially trying to prevent us from falling into? Have we have have we irrevocably fallen into that? Like uh, this morning, I was on on TikTok. Yes, users, I have a TikTok, <laughs> but I don't, but I don't, but but I don't publishing anything any there. I have no idea what I what I would publish. I'm certainly not going to dance in front of the mirror in the bathroom. At least not all the time. Yeah, not all the time, or at least not on right. video. So so it, so if. You know, if that's the if seven seconds, seven to fifteen seconds, right, is is the new is yeah. the new length of the media that we have today. I, I wonder whether those kind of strong narratives mm-hmm. that you you articulate for Lear that he was concerned about having a space for dialogue, having a space for um, civil dialogue that that the fracturing of the media space uh, has prevented that. Is that is that Postmodernism is that simply the death of meta narratives? How, mm-hmm. how should we understand when we look back and we see such a strong kind of consensual narrative on on the religious left? If if we talk about it in that way for Lear, how, how do we then come forward and and assess our our current age in comparison to that? Well, it's a wonderful question. I think, to be honest, uh, that's part of the fall that I kind of talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think a wonderful example just to speak to that is the fact that, you know, ABC has now twice put on live shows or live performances of his shows, of Norman Lear shows. You know, I know that academics don't really watch uh, cable television for whatever reason or network television for whatever reason. Uh, but ABC in the last, say, four or five months has twice put on episodes of Norman Lear's All in the Family and The Jeffersons. I've wondered why myself. Uh, what's the deal with the timing Mm. Uh, to me, that kind of consensual, aspirational, civility grounded understanding of the public square continues to live with us and live on, you know, in shows like Parks and Recreation. I wrote 
a piece that it, that connected explicitly, you know, on the family to Parks and Recreation. And you're right about fracturing the 15 seconds. All of that is going on simultaneously. But on, on network television, there's still this kind of space for these sorts of shows. I don't really necessarily think that's the case now. Uh, I think a lot of people like The Good Place. I started watching that show when it first came on. I haven't watched it very much since. I know people get a lot out of that, especially, you know, kind of progressive individuals or academics. Uh, you know, it's philosophy and popular culture. You be, we're relevant, we matter, you know, whatever. Um, but to me, I think it still lives on in someone like Leslie Nope, uh, in the best possible senses and the worst possible senses. I think if you look at that show, you know, they're saying that it's local politics and it's not supposed to be national and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I think we see a lot of the sort of the limitations and, and definitely some of the contributions, but to me more so the kind of limitations of a certain progressive understanding of, of deliberation and how things get done. So to be honest, I think we're still seeing attempts to bring together a bigger space to view these sorts of things. Uh, I think in many ways it'd be nice if we had something like the firing line return in some capacity. Uh, I know the, the Brits have a show kind of like this called Question Time. I think we, I think it would be nice or necessary. I think it is necessary that we bring back this kind of larger conversation space, just for the reasons you're saying, because things are so fractured. I'm, I have so many questions <laughs> that, that I'm trying to decide which which one comes next. So, so I'm hearing two things. First, in the context of your book, you, you talk about how the liberal move for creating a space for dialogue actually ended up potentially weakening the religious left in the end. And in what you just said a moment ago, I heard the suggestion that in in order to create a national dialogue again, in, in order to create a space for, for that, we're replicating in some way the moves that you identify with Lear, right? That All in the Family was a space where um, Archie Bunker could say, say things that were unpopular and the characters Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. around him responded as caricatures of the uh, kind of uh, people of the day. Here's a, an, an angry person who has a racial identity. Here's a angry person who has a political affiliation and, and that, that the creation of that show was the space for that dialogue. Uh, I'm hearing, I'm hearing in, in what you just said that, that the, the what we've lost in the fracturing is the ability to have that that space for the dialogue. Is that the public square that we're talking about? Is is that the name for that space? It very much could be. Yeah, and that's something that I probably I could probably think a little bit more about or think more through. I think I just think with Lear when I say things like public square, public space, because I've been so taken by uh, there's this book. Uh, Let's see, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. And she, it's, a, it's a book of sociology, and she looks at something called a, a, mm. uh, a deep story. Uh, and it's a conservative deep story. That's the primary focus of the book. But she looks at a liberal, something called a liberal deep story. And that story is one of something called the public square. Or let's say, maybe not the public sphere, because that has too much kind of theoretical stuff going on. So we'll just say, you know, this idea of the public square. So the deep story is that liberal progressives have built this thing called the public, the public square. You have libraries, you have schools, you have art centers, you have cultural institutions, you have everything that you could possibly want. Uh, Things go smoothly, you have parks. But then at one point, as she says, marauders appear upon the proverbial gates, and they look to privatize what is otherwise public and freely accessible. So in many ways, to me, the public square is part of kind of the identity of progressive thought 
of politics. It's just something that you mm. think with as you begin to imagine what the public looks like or what the square could kind of look like. And so I suppose it, in the early 70s, that looked one way where you had three channels, you had hundreds of millions of people watching at one time. Maybe that public is different than the kind of public that we have now, where we want to theorize a little bit or a notion of the public square. Um, but to me, what I wanted to emphasize, it's certainly a space, an imagined one, but it's also sort of a tool or it's sort of something that progressives I already kind of think with in order to articulate a broader vision of the public good and with something like Lear, the public interest which is something that he defends his programming in very explicitly as something that's constitutionally protected. Um, so to me, it's sort of fluid, but I wanted to emphasize that the square is this imaginative tool that progressives use to articulate mm. visions of the broader good. I'm really curious about how we can th think back about these, these moments that you're talking about in the sixties and seventies. Mm. And, and as a historian who is, too young to have lived through those. Mm -hmm. I really wonder about our ability to explain to our students today and to the to the public that might be younger than those eras how the public square is different than than it used to be. And and we've we've mentioned already fracture, right? The age of fracture. Mm -hmm. We've mentioned maybe that there's a technological component mm -hmm. to it. I know that if we were economists talking, maybe we would be talking about, you know, a uh, huge inequality. If we were uh, political theorists, we might be talking about polarization. Um, but, neoliberalism. Yeah, neoliberalism. Um, you know, but yeah. but I'm certainly an American religious historian and and you may see yourself mm -hmm. in that way too. What's what's is the culture war the thing for us then when mm. we talk about the public square in in relation to what is the what is the the mechanism yeah. by which we think through the public square? So for for your book, it seemed that that was the case. Is that is that how you feel about it too? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really a great way of saying it. I use the metaphor of theaters and kind of theater. So mm -hmm. you know, the traditional senses we have the European theater, the theater, the Pacific, you know, kind of World War II kind of sensibilities. But then I like to play around with the fact that that kind of martial interaction came home with a vengeance. And that's when we begin to talk about Kent State. That's when we talk about disillusionment. Mm -hmm. That's when we talk about Vietnam. That's when we, we, we begin to talk about Watergate, a systematic falling out when it comes to trust and belief in the fundamental institutions that theoretically ground American public life or grounded American public life at the time. Um, and I think in many ways, the success of someone like Trump continues to take advantage of that we destroy what we want to actually become a part of, you know, collateral damage doesn't necessarily matter. Um, so I know the word and the phrase gets used a lot. Uh, it gets used, you know, culture war. A lot of sociologists argue that there is no such thing that it's really just kind of all browbeating and it's just pundits and it's all top down. And you look at actual numbers and people aren't that divided and blah, 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 blah. I did an exam on this. Um, I kind of disagree with a lot of that. I think, um, and if anything, it's not necessarily top down or bottom up. It's simultaneous. Um, you know, we don't, I don't think we have to make choices when it comes to something like that. I do think we do have to be particular and specific when it comes to this period of time, 60s and 70s to the present, mm. when it comes to culture war. So number of wonderful books out there, Andrew Hartman has a number of wonderful books. Um, I think someone like Stephen Prothero is helpful, but not necessarily a, um, a completely helpful way. I think we can look at something like that and ask, we have something like, or say we have something like the culture wars. We have cultural war. And something like cultural warfare. And so for me, what I try and do with my students, like you were saying, is 
you know, if the public square was all in the family at one point, maybe the public square is, is YouTube right now or something like TikTok or Twitter or, you know, something like that. So maybe that's the public square. And so I use a lot of media in my classes. I use a lot of clips um, to give them a sense of, you know, a shared experience that is maybe, you know, obliterated, you know, over the past 40 or 50 years. But yes, I think the nature, the all-consuming nature of the conflict, the exacerbation that has taken place because of social media, the swirl that Jason Bivens will speak soon of in his forthcoming book on, I think, Embattled Majority, Embattled Majorities, just a wonderful thinker and scholar. Um, that's what I really think we need to turn to analytically in an, in an, in a, in, in an interdisciplinary way, um, pulling from critical theory, pulling from sociology, pulling from um, psychoanalysis, uh, because these are the times that we live in and these are the tools that are necessary to understand our present conditions. I love that. I love that. It, that it, that in every answer, where I try to kind of like hedge you a little bit into a box. I'm like, would you like to get into this box here? You're like, no. It's much more complex. There's so many more things yeah. that go in the box. So, so, uh, do you want to periodize things in this way? No, we need them all. Do you do? Is the public square this way? No, it's <laughs> all of these things too. I love it because I th- I think it really speaks to the willingness to mm. uphold a level of complexity in the way that these things work, they simply are not reducible. They're not, we, we cannot, um, we cannot make the units which, which with, we talk about the past so singular. And one of the real mm-hmm. constructions of the culture war is that there are two sides yeah. that they all share the positions that are on one side or the other and that there's yep. no one in the middle and that people on one end of the spectrum can't disagree uh-huh. on a single issue. Right. Or that they don't count like that, that construction, right. Is the, is, is what you're resisting in, in the questions. And I think it's so, it's so useful. It's such a useful resistance to offer uh, for everyone in order to create that complexity, one of the the, mm. the virtues, one of the values, maybe that we think about, and this brings us back to Lear more explicitly, is is civility, mm. right? The the ability to sustain for a moment something that is disagree disagreeable uh, for you, uh, in the hopes that by having mm-hmm. that dialogue, by being in that shared space, by having that experience, that both parties will be improved in some way. And and that takes a level of faith, right? That I'm going to hear something that I'm going to disagree with, but that I'm going to think seriously about it and consider it. And then on the far side of that, that I'll come out better for it. Is that, is that how we should think about Lear's understanding of, of civility? Yeah, I think it might be a little bit more, com- you know, maybe a little more complex, maybe a little more nice. complicated, but at the same time, <laughs> no, 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 I only bring it up because I think it's part of, I think it's part of the very thing that has to be examined, um, because I mm. think in a, in, a, in a theoretical way, yes, that's exactly how all this is supposed to go. And, you know, People for the American Way, the nonprofit organization he creates, doubles, triples, and quadruples down on this notion, and it has been really ever since its origins in the early 80s. I mean, I have a little sort of pamphlet that literally says, you know, how to mix religion and politics. It's very, you know, prescriptive. And so right. to me, it's not necessarily bad or negative that we have these ideas, civility, this or that. It's really the prescriptive element that's the problem. You know, it's, you know, Leslie Nope is fine and great up until she makes you sign mm-hmm. a friendship contract so that you're, she's, you know, you're her friend forever. You know, that's when it begins to turn in on itself. You know, that's when I, what I begin to argue is kind of the fall a little bit, is that in a certain way, progressive kind of visions begin to become a little bit autocratic in some sense. Not all the time, you know, certainly. Right. But go ahead, yeah. Is this the critique of uh, the kind of purity tests, right, for 
you're not a card carrying progressive if blank, right? Or you're not a conservative if, say, for instance, your position on abortion is uh, uh, X or Y, right? That is that the sense that that you're getting at there? Yeah, and I would say that that that's something I'm looking at in my sort of next project is the, the purity test. So conservative individuals in the 70s called those Bible scorecards. Mm. So that was one of the ways that, you know, we talk about a quote unquote rise of the Christian right. I think that's kind of overblown. I think that's something I'm going to get into in sort of the forthcoming work. But really, if you look at something like that, the very purity test, that was something that was created to begin to unseat progressive and democratic senators in the 1970s. And that's something that Lear explicitly fights against in his somewhat well-known, you know, People for the American Way PSA that he does where he has the hard hat guy get out of the forklift and basically say, you know, why are we having uh, preachers tell us how to vote? You know, why are we, why are we doing that? According to this preacher, I'm 75% Christian, you know, and my wife is 60% and luckily my son is a hundred because he agrees with everything that they say. So Lear explicitly was fighting against that very idea but it has lived into our present, you know, I contend certainly in the sense that, yes, you use this scorecard to say, okay, what do you think about abortion? Yes or no? Check. Yes or no. What do you think about guns? Yes or no? What do you think? And it was a systematic judgment of a politician's suitability to a given office based on this selection of issues going back to the social issue. These are the things that make the social issue the thing. And cultural warfare itself, like you're saying, it seeks to polarize and it seeks to create these sides that are very much the mechanism that has produced polarization that you were saying. So it's just a series of wonderful questions. And, and I can't remember where we started with that, but I mean, I would, I would say that, right, the resistance to that kind of this way or that way is very much the mechanism that keeps everything going. And I think certain sides take advantage of that. Something like, say, you know, look what happened with Colin Kaepernick and the kneeling and how that turned from brutality to something about the military, which had nothing to do with anything. So I think those are the tactics that we have to begin to understand a little bit better. I think it's the move to make things simple and clear, right? That, that when we, let's, let's say you have a complicated issue like Colin Kaepernick kneeling, right? That, that when he kneels, he means one thing. And he may even say what he means, although he didn't before he started kneeling. He did after he started kneeling. And then <clears throat> he he has this moment where what the action has been has been received by the public in a way that was totally unintended, right? That he tried to create a simple action for a simple cause, and everybody saw different competing simple things with him. So the whole story for us is really complex because we can tell it in all these different ways. But for all the the agents, all the actors mm-hmm, that are invested mm-hmm. in this, they were seeing it in simple ways. You're disrespecting the military, right? Or this is not the space for for such political action. So they bring the the complexity mm-hmm, of the narrative mm-hmm. down to these really simple moments. And that, and that feels to me like the move of, of the culture wars, right? That how can we, how can we condense all of America who believes all these different things in that moment? What can we do? We can, we can make issues and then we can ask you, you know, we can pull you on that and that sheet and check the box for you. And if we can do that, now we have consolidated the narrative, right? We've consolidated the power into these, you know, five issues, let's say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, if, mm-hmm. If, if you had, as we as we come to the end of our time here, if you had to um, 
consolidate the issues mm-hmm. for for mm-hmm. Lear and and for the story that you're telling about the religious left that rose with him and that also maybe fell because of how he had framed it what what would be the simple story there is there a way to to wrap that up in a bow for us well that's a wonderful (laughs) wonderful wonderful question so sort of maybe the singular maybe unifying sort of narrative i mean i think there's nothing let's see let me put my thoughts together that's a really good question um I guess what I want to point to is that he, even though a lot of this takes place in the 60s and 70s, I mean, one of the benefits, I guess, of doing a project like this is that I was able to talk to him. You know, I was able to interview him a couple of times and still get a sense of, you know, what he's fighting against, what he's continuing to work on behalf of. Uh, so, you know, in the past, he said things like, um, you know, Donald Trump is kind of the collective expression of America's middle finger. Um, the fact that he's putting these shows on still, uh, I think that there's a wonderful amount of productive sort of contribution when it comes to visions of the public life and his representation of the religious left, you know, because for a lot of people, that's not what they think of um, off the top of their heads per se, when they think of something like the religious left. But I wanted to make that case, you know, explicitly because I saw his access to media and the networks as being a very influential uh, place of influence. But I think, you know, with that influence and with that positivity and production came a certain sense of um, maybe presumptuousness a certain uh, assumption about, well, if we put a bigot in front of everyone, they'll realize what's going on. They'll get the satire. They'll be in an, on the joke. And we can all, you know, watch Archie Bunker disappear into the dustbins of history, which obviously, as we know, didn't happen. If anything, the very opposite has happened, which is in many ways to an extent how we have the kind of presidential situation that we have today. Um, so if anything, I think it's that kind of lack of the acknowledgement of the complexity the lack of the acknowledgement that something like All in the Family was an attempt to address discrimination, to ad- address racism and bigotry in a positive way, but in many ways oftentimes uh, created the very thing it was trying to fight against. And I think in many ways that's kind of the challenge that liberal progressives have to understand today uh, or figure out today still in the sense of you know, clinging to gods and guns and, and slippage, you know, slips of the tongue about deplorables. I think they're still lost uh, to a certain extent when it comes to talking to people of, you know, working class peoples. Uh, Daniel Bell speaks about a transition from class to culture, that progressives lose the sense or the ability to speak to working class peoples over the course of the 60s and 70s. I think that Lear is sort of a poster child of that transition. We'd rather laugh at Archie Bunker than actually understand his socioeconomic conditions that produce the behaviors that we then put in front of the American people to laugh at and to satirically present, not unlike The Daily Show or The Colbert Report or any of these things that have been produced since. So many ways, I guess that's what I would say is that the kind of lacking of the acknowledgement or accountability of the very things that, you know, you're trying to fight against, you're actually kind of cultivating at the same time. And Lear helps us understand that progress and, and falling off. Well, I'm so thankful for your time today and for the really interesting way that you think uh, about the past and the really interesting figures that I think you're bringing to our attention for, for those that may be in the international audience, uh, all in the family. There are many, many clips that are available mm-hmm. on on YouTube uh, for you to kind of get a sense of it, and we'll try to link to one or two of those when when this go li- goes live. We thank you so much for your time, Dr. Rolski. We we hope we get to speak to you again. Yeah, I love that. Thank you very much again for having me. Thank you so much for that fascinating interview, uh, Dave and Benji. 
Um, Dave, there's so much to unpack there. Um, could you actually just um, let us know what your favorite part of that interview was? I'm so impressed with with uh, Dr. Ralski Benji is a, a Twitter friend and and he is a delight to speak with. His book that uh, our conversation emerged out of the rise and the fall of the religious left uh, from Columbia University Press is a look at the role of politics and television and popular culture from the 1970s. And in our conversation, I kept trying to kind of really get uh, uh, Benji to kind of uh, fit into a box to, to jump in and frame the conversation that we're having in particular ways about the culture war. And he was so uh, elusive in a really positive way. It really was representing the way in which the people that work on religious studies have really powerful rhetorical strategies for making complex things stay complex and to try to avoid oversimplifying into binaries or into um, the hard and fast edges that uh, sometimes the news media and popular culture can really kind of give things where it seems black and white. But I think as scholars, we all know that that is, that is not the case. And so that, my favorite part was just that back and forth with him trying to kind of push him and then getting the pushback, which was, which was a delight. It was really fun to speak with him. And the idea of categories, the you know, category of religion and this idea of labels is something that we've actually been talking about quite frequently on the podcast over the last you know, couple of months, couple of episodes. It seems to be a theme that's sort of coming up a lot lately. Yeah, I think this is one of the the real strengths of the Religious Studies Project is that we have a critical theoretical orientation that makes us really suspicious about those categories that all of us, scholars, people in the public, everyday common language, that we just fall into these tropes of using them. And so uh, in my students in emailing them amid um, our move to online learning right now, I have several of them telling me that they are washing their hands religiously. Mm. And I thought that that was such, that was such a, a teachable moment because there's, there's a word that is standing in for all of the things that we might think about. W what do you mean by that? Are, are you mean that we're doing it as a ritual? Do you mean that we're doing it obsessively? Do you mean that we're doing it with intentionality? What is the, what is the religiously mean in that context? What's the work there? And so I think at the Religious Studies Project, we take delight in really trying to kind of push and pull those categories. And I know that that you and I have talked about this before with the interview with uh, Tim Fitzgerald and David G. Robertson, and so many of the other interviews, you're right to say that this is one of our focus. And I think it's really one of our strengths. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um, but let's talk about what we have coming up next time. I'm particularly looking forward to this next interview. Um, Dave, what do we have coming up next time? Next time, we have an interview by Candace Mixon on an iconism in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam with uh, Brigitte Meyer and Terry Stordallen. And we're really pleased to really bring you this take at um, the absence of images, the iconoclasm that's present in these major traditions and the kind of normativity of uh, anti-images that is sometimes present in them. And so they're speaking from their co-edited volume that has recently come out about figurations and sensations of the unseen. And we're delighted to bring you that conversation next time. And until then, all that's left to say is 
Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC04. Four seven seven five zero. Brought to you by founders and editors in chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals.